I have been married now uh, eight years. My wife, Melissa, and our seven-month-old daughter, McKinley, were here in the first service. They're not here right now. But since I've been married eight years, I am now the foremost expert on marriage. Uh, Yeah, right. (laughs) After eight years, you realize how much you don't know. In fact, I wouldn't have too much to share. Some of you in here have, were like, eight years, whoa, you look too young to be married eight years, that's so long. And others are like, I'm already, we just had our 55th, it's nothing. Okay, but wherever you are, whether you're married or single or divorced or uh, widowed, wherever you are, we're going to learn wisdom about marriage and it's not coming from me, it's coming from God. He has a lot of wisdom for us for marriage. And that's what we're doing in our Get Wise series, we're pursuing wisdom in the Proverbs. There's a lot in the Bible and a lot we talk about, about, okay, what's right, what's wrong. But Christianity also has this huge area of, okay, well, how do you be wise in these different situations? Because it's not always right or wrong. You have to have wisdom to understand different situations, relationships. One of those is marriage. That's what we're talking about today, pursuing wisdom about marriage. Did you know the cost of a wedding in the U.S. now on average is $26,720? $26,000. That's $1,600 for attire, $1,300 for entertainment, $1,500 for flowers, $700 for gifts, $800 for invitations, and get this, almost $12,000 on the venue. But I decided to do a little investigating. Well, well, what's the average for our zip code here? So if the average in the U.S. is $26,720, what do you think the average for the cost of a wedding is here? in our Stapleton zip code. $45,356. And it's down payment on a home, right? That's a whole year's salary for some people. We're spending it on one day. Now, I don't have particular wisdom or, or insight to say about how much you should spend on your wedding. That's not what this message is about. In fact, last week we did talk about money, didn't we? You can listen to that message. It's online. You can watch it. And we, we talked about that and we said, hey, you've got to give to God first. You've got to save something. And, and then... As long as you're getting out of debt as fast as you can, you can prioritize your spending. If you think it's important, you spend on what's important to you and between you and God. That, we're not going to judge with people what's important, how much they spend on their wedding. But I bring that up not to say how much you should spend on your wedding or how much you shouldn't, but the fact we spend so much on one day. But how long are you supposed to be married? Your whole life. <laughs> Forever. Your whole life. So we spend so much on one day, and yet we have thousands and tens of thousands of days after that that are probably more important, and yet we seem to think that it's just going to come easily. That once you find the right person and get married, oh, it's just going to be great, happily ever after from there. And, hey, but once you get married, you realize, hey, this is going to take some work. It's going to take some effort and cost. It's going to cost something, and it, it maybe not money, although the, you can put some money onto it. That's good. But it's saying, hey, we've got to put some effort and time into our marriages after this. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says that he often gets people coming to him for counseling, and they're saying, hey, I'm in love. I, I thought love was supposed to be easy. We think that, oh, it's supposed to be so easy. And he, he tells every single person who says that, he, he says to him, well, hey, do you think it's easy to be a great baseball player? No, no, no. They play 182 games a year. They're, they're practicing. They're lifting weights. In the off-season, they're, they're trying to eat right. They're, they're doing everything so that they can win. It's hard. It's tough because they want to do something great. Or he says, hey, what if you wanted to write an amazing novel? Do you think it comes easy to develop great characters and good dialogue? Or, or do you think it takes a lot of work to sit down and type 
day after day after day. Anything we want to do in our lives, if we want it to be great, takes a lot of energy and work. And that's okay. That's okay. So that's what I want to challenge us to do today. To get marriage right. We're going to have to put some effort into it. And that's what this message is about. Let's try to get some wisdom for our lives, how to interact better with our spouses, how to develop better communication, better intimacy. How do we do that? And we're going to use some wisdom. Now, if you're here today and saying, well, Matt, I'm single. I'm single. Whether you know, you've been single for a long time, you're widowed, divorced, you can kind of sit back today. You can kind of sit back and say, huh, this message isn't for me. You guys have to deal with all that stuff. That's okay. You can sit back today. Although I do want you to be thinking, how can I encourage and pray for my, my friends that are married because they're going through all of that. <laughs> right? And I do want to say most importantly here that if you are single, that doesn't mean you're less. Okay, we really value marriage here in our church and in Christianity and the Bible. But marriage is not above singleness. In fact, the most complete, perfect person to ever live was Jesus Christ. Was he married? No. He was single. So if he was the most perfect, complete human being and he was single, that means getting married doesn't mean you're any better. In fact, you're going to have a lot more things to work on and deal with. So if you're single here, just say, hey, this is a message not for me, but that's okay. However, if you're here and saying, I want to get married someday, or maybe I want to get married again, you should be taking more notes than anybody else. Teenagers, I'm talking to you be taking more notes than anybody else because you're saying hey someday I want to get married I want to prepare for that and you're going to do a lot better than everybody else who just oh got married oh I never even thought about it so we're talking about pursuing wisdom in the Proverbs getting marriage right and I'm going to have five different ways that we can get marriage right five different ways from the Proverbs we're not going to look at everything the Proverbs have to say about marriage we're going to look at the most important ones and pull out some of the insights from that to make these five different principles about ways to get marriage right so here's the first one here's the first one it's a little bit before you're married be choosy be choosy here's one so for those of you who aren't married yet or, or thinking about getting married or you're dating and engaged or you're thinking hey I'd love to get remarried be choosy be choosy this is an important decision Really important. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. He who finds. So that means there's a search. There's seeking after the spouse. And it's difficult. And once you find a good wife, wow, that's, that's favor from the Lord because that's been difficult to find that good spouse. Now I do want to say for this proverb, and you're going to see it throughout the verses we look at, is that they're either directed to a man or to a woman. You're going to see that. And, and I want you to say, hey, even though it might be directly for husbands or directly for wives, it can apply to me too. In fact, the Proverbs were written by Solomon, a lot of them, to his sons. So he directs them a lot of times like here towards his sons. So he's addressing them. And if you were writing a letter to your sons, you wouldn't also include gender neutral pro- pronouns or anything like that to be politically correct, would you? But I want you to see that if it's directed towards husbands, it can also apply to wives. If it's directed to wives, it can also apply to husbands. So we need to just come forward with all the verses and look at it that way. So if he who finds a wife finds what is good, he finds a husband finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. And what you see here is it's he who finds. So I want to put an emphasis on that because the finding is difficult. It takes some time. It takes some effort and takes energy. We have to be choosy. We don't just settle for marriage. 
You should never settle. You're saying, okay, this is the person I'm, I'm choosing. Now, in this ancient time period, a lot of marriages were arranged. And in fact, in our world today, a lot of marriages are arranged. We're kind of a weird, unique culture that that's not that way. And there's been a lot of studies that have shown arranged marriages are actually healthier and better and more likely to stay together than when we're doing it ourselves. Because it's difficult. And in our culture, we do kind of do that ourselves. So maybe it helps to get some advice and wisdom from people. Talk to your friends. If your friends don't like that person, maybe there's a good reason. You can't see some of the flaws at first. Maybe your parents give you some input on this. Mm. Some of your parents are nodding your head. Don't be mean about this. Okay? It's a difficult task. You want to be encouraging, not be like, nope, not good enough for me. Okay? We need to, to be looking for wisdom in that, but we need to be choosy. And when I say choosy, I do not mean picky. That's not what this word means. Picky is different than choosy. Choosy is, okay, you're taking careful consideration to choose the right person, looking at what's important. Picky is just saying, eh, I don't like those shoes. Don't be like George Costanza. Don't, okay? In Seinfeld, he, he found any flaw he could with the person. Anything. John Tierney had a great article in the New York Times called Picky, Picky, Picky. And in it, he recorded some of the real comments that people gave for not picking a person to be their spouse. So here's one. Sure, he's a partner, but it's not a big firm. He wears those black shorts. How could I take him seriously after seeing the road less traveled on his bookshelf? If she would just lose seven pounds. These are real comments that people have. And the old TV show Love Connection, I think there's a new one now, but on the old one it was hosted by Chuck Woolery. And this was an actual um, episode. There was a couple, of course, they go out on a date and afterwards they talk to the host and this young man said, well, hey, this date started out great. Started out great. And this is literally what he said. He said, she opened the door and she looked fantastic. Beautiful face, great body, nice smile. Everything was going fine until she turned around. And he paused, shook his head. He said, Chuck, looking at the host, she had dirty elbows dirty elbows that's what broke this that's just picky she can wash her elbows it's such a lame thing to be picky about okay we need to be choosy about the things that matter the things that are important to us Proverbs 31 is a great chapter on the noble woman I love this chapter and it begins in verse 10 by saying a wife of noble character who can find who can find it's difficult she is more, worth far more than rubies. Charm is deceptive, it says at the end of that chapter. And beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. It's tough to find a good wife. It's tough to find a good husband. And when you find him, that is valuable. So we need to be choosy about it at the beginning. And I love in verse 30 of chapter 31, it says charm is deceptive. Charm. This is that initial attraction you have to a person. Oh, they're fun to be around. Ooh, they get you all excited. Okay, but that charm is deceptive. It's deceptive because all of a sudden they do something or say something and it's gone. Or you're with them for a while and then it wears off and you start to notice all those weird things that they do. You didn't notice that they chewed like that. Because charm just like blinds you. You don't even see it. It's these rose-colored glasses. Oh, this person's so charming, but it's deceptive. 
So don't choose a person based on the charm they have. It also says beauty is fleeting. Physical attractiveness. This is an important thing. We'll talk about this later when we get to point number five. But physical beauty is fleeting. Someone can change their clothes or their hairstyle. They can gain some weight. Something can happen to them physically. They have a baby. We grow older. We grow balder. These things change. Beauty is fleeting. So if you base a marriage off of physical attraction, it's a pretty poor foundation. It's got to be more than that. So we're not picky about those things. We're choosy about what matters. And it says at the very end, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. What it's saying is what's on the inside of this person, whether it's a woman or a man, that's what counts. We should be more worried about character than chemistry. Sure, chemistry needs to be there. You wouldn't even go on a date with them if there was no chemistry. You can have chemistry with lots of people. Chemistry isn't the most important thing. It's character, what's on the inside. And it says specifically who fears the Lord. Our deepest, most important things about us are our faith. For those of us who are Christian, it's our faith and it's so important to us. So we want to look for someone who shares that with us. In fact, we're told in Corinthians that we should be, uh, not be unequally yoked. And that means is you should find someone who, who shares these spiritual things with you, that you agree on these deep truths in your soul. It says that we should marry someone in the Lord in Corinthians. In the Lord. What this means is we want someone who shares our faith with us. This is really important. It's really important. So if you're here and you're saying, well, hey, Matt, I'm married to someone and they don't share my faith. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, well, pray for that person. Okay, we, we want that to share those things. Hey, maybe we can develop that relationship. And if you're here dating or engaged to someone who doesn't share your faith, bring them to church. Say, hey, come to church with me for five weeks in a row. Five weeks. And if still after five weeks you're not even interested in faith, dump them. Yeah. That's my challenge to you. I mean, this isn't a rule. This is wisdom, right? My advice, just give them five weeks and then dump them. You can find someone. We're going to be choosy about this. We're going to be choosy. And, and God can work that out. I mean, I, I've seen so many couples begin to share the faith they didn't share when they first started dating. But God can work even through that. Even through that. Um, here's another point. Test drives don't help. Hmm. They don't. Test drives. This is what our culture tells you. Just live with them, sleep with them, and see if you have the right chemistry. But test drives don't help. Uh, the Bible tells us in Song of Solomon, and I encourage you to read this because this is a whole book like about sex. Did you know that was in the Bible? Mm, read it. But in 8.4 it says, Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. And the appropriate time is marriage. Wait to awaken love. But here, it's not just the Bible. The Bible does command this. Most people know that. But, but it's not just the Bible. It's the wisdom of the world. If the wisdom of the world, um, if you look at studies, actually shows that if you live together before you're married, it's worse for you in marriage. Bet you didn't know that. They don't broadcast that in the news. They don't show that on TV, do they? But it's actually worse. People who have multiple sexual partners before marriage have a, t- a 200% increase in the rates of depression. People that have fewer sexual partners have lower odds of separation and divorce. Some people say, well, hey, Matt, I know I'm going to marry this person, so it doesn't really matter, does it? We're going to get married, so it's okay if we live together or sleep together right now. But here's the thing. 
only one in five couples that cohabitate actually make it to marriage. One in five. So you're thinking, yes, I can sleep with this person. I'm going to get married to them. But you have a 20% chance, the statistics say, of actually marrying them. So uh, actually it could make things worse. Um, They say that 50% of marriages end in divorce. And the number goes up and down depending on the year. But if you choose to have one sexual partner in your life, your spouse, do you know what the percentage chance of likelihood of you getting a divorce is? Three to four percent. Because you're choosing that one person. In fact, Gallup has looked at a lot of this evidence out there and they say a substantial body of evidence indicates that those who live together before marriage are more likely to break up after marriage. So actually, if you just look at the world, not with the Bible, not what God says about it, just look at the world, it's not wise to do that. It's wise to wait until marriage. Now, I know this is a challenging word. I know I'm stepping on some toes here. I know that this isn't popular in our culture because uh, it used to be that um, in the 1960s, 72% of couples were married. Now it's less than 50%. So a lot of couples are cohabiting. In fact, the, the numbers have increased 15-fold of couples living together and not being married. So I know it's not popular to say this. I know I'm a pretty unpopular dude. But I'm just trying to help you out. <laughs> I want you to have a healthier, happier marriage. And if you're here and you're living with someone that you're not married to, get married. Pretty simple fix. Pretty simple, right? Just get married. I'll help you out. And if you're here and you're saying, well, Matt, I am married, but we did live together. Don't tell anybody. Don't worry, I won't tell anybody. But the thing is, God can still work through that. And he does. And that's why we have a message like this today. So we can get marriage right. Even if it, you know, the percentage-wise, you're like, I don't like that. But hey, we now can say, hey, let's as a couple, let's do it right. God has grace and forgiveness for us. We all have things in our past we wish we could do differently. Amen, yeah. But God has grace for that and can move us into the future in a healthier way. In a healthier way. So that's our first point. Be choosy. Be choosy. Take your time. Do it right. Second point. Build your home together. Build your home together. Proverbs twenty four twenty seven declares, Put your outdoor work in order and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. Now, this isn't talking about physical construction necessarily. This is saying that building your house, this is you coming together as a couple, making a home together, making a culture, making a family, making traditions. And it's saying before you do that, you need to get your outdoor work in order. Now, there's a lot of wisdom in saying, hey, I'm not ready to get married until I'm financially stable. I'm not ready to have kids until I have uh, an income that can afford to take care of kids. This is wisdom from the Bible. And... Melissa and I, we got married pretty young and I was actually still in school when we got married but I I worked on the side and she had a full-time job. But we we did say, hey, we're going to have kids once we're stable. So, you know, looking back, should I have waited until I had a full-time job? Well, maybe. I don't know. We we all have things in our past where we could... Maybe I would have changed it. Although I probably would have gotten married earlier now if I could change it. Marriage is good. Marriage is good. But the point is that before we need to build a house together. So that's a little bit of wisdom. Okay, get, get your job in order. Make sure you have a, a stable income. We talked about income last week, money last week. But then once you do that, put your house together, it says. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wise woman builds her house. But with her own hands, the foolish one tears hers down. 
the wise woman. So it's saying the wise person is saying, I'm going to build this house. I'm going to build up a culture in our family. This can be things like the norms for your family. Are we going to have a dinner together? Are we going to share meals? When we are at the table together, can you put your feet up at the table? Okay, do, you, do you have to have different rules? I, I know my family growing up, it was a big deal for my mom that you couldn't play with your food. Anybody have that rule in their household growing up? It was a big deal. Well, not in Melissa's family. So I remember on one of our first dates, we were going out to eat and we had finished up and she's kind of just playing around on her plate with the fork and I was like, what are you doing? And made this stupid fight and I was an idiot because I don't really care if she plays with her food or not. So in our family, we had to make new rules, make new cultural norms and we decided, hey, dinner time is supposed to be really fun as a family, so let's play with your food if you want. Okay, seriously, what's more important? But you make those cultural norms as your family. As your family. What's going to be important to you? What's going to be important to you? Are you going to say, hey, every week, no matter what we're doing, we're going to church. Even if we're traveling, this is going to be part of our family. We're going to make it important for us. Maybe you're saying, hey, every night, we want to have a nighttime story, and it's going to come from the Bible for our kids. You're making these rules, but you're deciding them together. And this goes for the different roles and responsibilities in your home, too. Did you know the Bible doesn't say that men have to work and women have to be in the kitchen? Some people think the Bible says that. They do. But that's, it doesn't say that. That was 1950s Leave it to Beaver. It's not what the Bible says. In fact, that noble, the woman of noble character in Proverbs 31, she's working outside the home. And she's a real estate developer. It says with the money that she has earned, she buys a field. And she's developing property. Because the point is, it's not which roles each person does. It's what do you decide together to build your home on. So you might decide, hey, we're a little more traditional. Uh, The guy's going to mow. The girl's going to do the dishes. Or or you might flip it. You might flip it. But you decide that together. And you're saying, okay, I I, I like doing this chore. I don't don't mind doing it. Then you should do that thing. And, And your spouse can do the things that they don't, I mean, that they like doing. And you try to figure it out. And the ones that nobody likes, you just divvy them up. Right? But you do this as a couple, building your home together. What are the cultural norms that we're going to have? We decide together. Marriage is a team sport. You either win together or lose together. You've got to decide together. Are we going to win? Are we going to do this? Are we going to figure out who does what? And those roles and responsibilities will change throughout your marriage. Someone will start a new job. Someone will, you know, you'll have a kid or two or three and things change. And you've got to talk about that. Now you're retired, things change again. So continue to build your home together. This is really a good way to have a healthy marriage. Build your home together. Point number three. Make your communication positive. Make your communication positive. Too often we fall into just negative communication, derision, insults, criticism. Let's avoid that and make our communication positive positive. Proverbs 21.9 says, Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. And this proverb is so important, it appears twice with identical wording. And in fact, that same proverb, it repeats in 21.19, it says, Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. And 27.15 says, A quarrelsome wife is like the dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. And Men, this isn't just wives. This can be reversed. A nagging husband is just as bad or worse than the wife, right? 
negative communication is bad. It's unhealthy for your marriage. You need to make it positive. Make it positive. So, quarrelsome is saying that this shouldn't be creating unnecessary conflict. In one of our messages in the series, we talked about how to have healthy conflict and how to handle that well. Go back and listen to that. I'm not going to talk about that a lot today, about conflict. We need to be healthy in that conflict and only create the conflict or talk about it when it's necessary. So let's lead, let some things... Let bygones be bygones. Nagging. This is too many complaints. There are times where you will have a complaint or a criticism that needs to be said. But we need to not make that all of our communication with a person. Studies have shown that for every one negative comment in a marriage, if you want it to be healthy, there should be seven positive. If you want a healthy marriage, one negative to every seven positive. So if you're saying, I do need to tell my husband this, I do need to tell my wife that she's been doing this wrong. Think of seven good things to say before and after, you know. Seven positive to one negative. That should be the ratio in a healthy marriage. John Gottman, some of you have heard of, he's a pretty famous psychologist who studied marriages for decades. And he has an over 90% chance, or a 90% success rate in looking at a couple for under five minutes. He can watch a couple for five minutes on videotape or in person and can just tell with 90% accuracy whether they're going to stay together or be divorced. He can tell just by watching them communicate to each other. 90% chance of success with that. And these are the four horsemen, that he's dis- these four different things that are negative communications that he's um, focused on. And he said, if you do these four things, it will be really bad for your marriage. Here's number one. Criticism. Criticism. If there's criticism in your communication and specifically attacking someone's character or personality, it's like one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse for your marriage. So criticizing someone's, success, or someone's character or personality. So this isn't saying, hey, you're washing the dishes wrong or you're putting them in the dishwasher wrong. It's saying you are a lousy human being. You are a jerk. You're saying about their personality or character. That criticism is so negative and so bad. The second one, contempt. If there's contempt in your communication, it's really bad. This includes name-calling, mocking, condescending humor, belittling, or demeaning. You think you're so funny, but all your jokes are about how dumb or how stupid your spouse is. That's really bad. It's really bad for your relationship. The third one, defensiveness. Defensiveness. This is refusing to apologize or back down in a conflict. Fourth one, stonewalling. This is when you decide, I'm not even going to care anymore. I'm not working on this relationship. And men, men are the offenders here 85% of the time when it comes to stonewalling. Just think, fine, I'm, I'm done with this. We can't do that. We can't let our communication drift off to the negative. If it does that, that's one of the clearest signs that your marriage will be on the rocks and headed towards a bad place. Let's have communication that's positive instead. John Gottman was asked, well, what's the, the best thing? What's the most powerful thing couples can do to make their marriage healthy? Get this. It's at the end of a day, talking to each other about your day. That's the most powerful thing you can do to keep your marriage together. Just the positive communication is that at the end of every day, you care about the other person and say, hey, let's talk about what happened today. Take five minutes. Take five minutes and say, what's going on? And what happened with your boss? Why are you stressed? What, what, what good things happened today? And just talking about those things, unwinding at the end of a day, 
is one of the most powerful, positive things you can do for your relationship. Sam Crabtree has a great book called Practicing Affirmation. And in it, he says, a shortage of affirmation, which is saying good things about someone, explains many things, from teenage rebellion to failed marriages. He writes, ongoing corrections make the relationship more and more painful. The wife generally seems critical, an example, but that secretary at work is understanding and affirming. Who is gaining influence? This is how marriages fall apart. If the communication isn't positive, but it's negative again and again and again. So we need to say, hey, we're not going to do that. We want a healthy marriage. We want to succeed at this thing. We're in this together. We're on the same team, so let's make our communication positive. Proverbs 31 ends this way. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done. And let her works bring her praise at the city gate. This is saying if you have a great spouse, man or woman, praise her. Honor him. Elevate that person. Say, look how great they are. Look how great they are. Look at all the things that they have done. Praise them and thank them regularly. A study done by the University of Virginia, I'm sorry, the University of Georgia, found out the most consistent, significant predictor of happy marriages was whether one spouse expressed gratitude. In all their studies with couples, they said the healthier couples, the ones that were going to stay together, expressed gratitude. Isn't that a simple way to have positive communication? Just say thank you. I really appreciate what you did. So if we're expressing gratitude towards spouse, if we're thanking them, we're going to make that communication more positive. It's going to be more upbeat than all the negative criticism all the time. Even if you feel like there's a lot to criticize them about. Because there is. But there's a lot of things to criticize you about too. So we need to flip that and say, instead of being critical and negative, I'm going to be positive in my communication. And if you're thinking, well, my spouse hasn't earned it. They're on a string of terrible stuff over and over again. And then they do one little thing. I'm not going to praise them. I don't want to reward them for that. Do it anyways. Do it anyways. I've noticed that, especially at the beginning of something, you've been there. When you're starting something new, if you get praised for it, you need that praise, right? You need it because you feel so shy. I don't know if I'm doing this right. You get the praise, you're going to do it again. Same thing with spouses. Maybe you want them to start a new habit or do a new thing or a new chore and they don't feel comfortable with it. You praise them for doing a pretty crummy job, but at least they did it. They're going to be more likely to do it again. It's true. We're, you know, in a lot of sense, you're kind of training them. I tell spouses this, you know, treat your spouse like a dog. In a good way. Whenever they do something good, praise them and reward them for it. Oh, you did so great. You did amazing. Even if it's a little thing. It can be so healthy. One of my personal mottos that I, I want to leave with you guys. Left, or I'm sorry. Leave no good thing left unsaid. Leave no good thing left unsaid. If you think something in your head, oh, they're doing kind of good. They're looking good today. I really appreciate them. Oh, I just love that person. If you think it, say it. We're thinking a lot of good things about our spouses and that for some stupid reason they don't come out of our mouths. If you think it, say it. Let no good thing be left unsaid. So, so when you're with your spouse, if you're like, well, I told them I loved them last week when we got married on our wedding day, uh, tell them again and again and again and again. If you think they're attractive, if you like the way they look, if they did something nice for you, praise them, honor them, thank them over and over again. Let's make our communication positive. 
That's how we're going to have healthy, happy marriages. Here's our fourth thing. Keep to the path of covenant faithfulness. Keep to the path of covenant faithfulness. Let me explain this. Proverbs 2, starting in verse 16, we read, Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she has made before God. Surely her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirits of the dead. Throughout Proverbs, there's this woman, the adulterous woman, and it really stands for a woman or a man, you know, whatever, you know, your, your attraction, whatever it is that takes you away from your spouse. This person, this thing that takes you away from your spouse will ruin your life if you go towards that person, if you walk in their path. So this is important because it says that person has ignored the covenant she has made with God. When you get married, you do it before God and these witnesses. That's what I say at the beginning of every wedding I do. Before God and these witnesses, you're making a covenant with this person and with God. And a covenant is not a contract. It's not. In our culture, all we understand is contracts. In a contract, if you do the thing you're supposed to do, the other person does it. If you don't do the thing you're supposed to do, then the other person can renege on the contract. That's not what a covenant is. A covenant says, I'm committed to you even if you don't do the thing you're supposed to do. That's why we say vows like, for better or for worse... In sickness and in health till death do us apart that, that, that's a whole range of things isn't it worse sickness death but you're in a covenant saying no matter what happens I'm committed to you no matter what happens in Out of Africa Robert Redford's character says to Meryl Streep do you think I love you more because of a piece of paper that's what our culture thinks it's just a piece of par- paper Marriage, what's the big deal? It's a piece of paper. What does it change about your love? But no, 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 no. You're making a covenant with God and this other person. Say, I'm committed to this person no matter what happens. No matter what happens. And that's the path we need to walk on. And I I use this language for path because it's really easy to walk astray and it leads us down to death. Proverbs 5, 8-10 says, Keep to a path far from her. Again, referencing the adulterous woman. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to the one who is cruel, lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. It says stay on the path. The problem with covenant faithfulness, you're saying I'm going to be faithful to this person that I have this relationship with, is the path we start to walk down on. And with this adulterous woman, it wasn't just all of a sudden an affair happened. That's not how it works. It's a path that you walk on for a while. And the wisdom is, don't even start walking down that path. Don't go near that person that you're attracted to. If it's someone you work with and they're flirting with you too much, be cold with them. It's better to be thought of as cold than to ruin your family. It means making rules of saying, hey, I'm not going to be one-on-one with someone of the opposite sex. People think you're weird. but It's better to be thought of as weird than to destroy your marriage. We're going to choose the path from the beginning. This also means if there's other things that are tempting you, like pornography, you're saying, hey, I'm going to get some software on my computer like Covenant Eyes. So I'm not even tempted to look at those things because I don't have access to it. You're saying, hey, at the very beginning, I'm going to choose to walk on the path of covenant faithfulness. Don't hang out with that person. Don't go to the bar with them. Don't hang out with them late at night. 
when you're traveling on the road for work, don't do it. Don't even go down that path at all. 1 Corinthians 10.13, there's a great promise. We read, God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, He will show you a way out so that you can endure. That's a great promise. So, so no matter how big the temptation is for you, there's a way out. There's a way out. You can overcome it. God has given you the power to do so. But this is what I think a lot of people get this verse messed up with. They think, well, hey, it's okay. I'm not going to cheat on my spouse because I'm committed to that. And God will provide a way out. But the way out for you maybe was way back at the beginning of that path. You shouldn't have ever even started hanging out with that person one-on-one. You should have never been holding hands, okay? That, that's how it goes. One step to another's to another and then an affair happens and, an, and a marriage is destroyed. So let's at the very beginning say, I'm going to avoid temptation by not walking down that path at all. Some of you today are feeling challenged by this and you need to say, hey, I need to start walking down a different path. Do it. Choose covenant faithfulness as the path that you have. One thing I love about the Proverbs is that it's so practical. It's so practical. You know, it doesn't even just say, if you, if you do this, you're sinning. If you, if, you, you know, if you don't do that, you're sinning. But it's a lot, just very practical consequences. Did you see what it says in, in verses um, 9 and 10 of chapter 5? If you go down this path with the adulterous woman, it says, Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. What it's saying is that if you have an affair and a divorce, your wife's going to take everything from you. You're going to lose your house and you're going to have to pay alimony. Your kids aren't going to like you and you're not going to be able to spend time with them very much. And your whole family, your whole life will be awful for the rest of your life. This is what can happen. It's saying, just think of the practical consequences. Not even whether it's right or wrong. Just the practical consequences. Is it worth it? I had a young guy come into my office once and um, he had a beautiful wife and kids. And he said, you know, Matt, I'm feeling really attracted to this other woman. It wasn't his wife. And for one, I don't know why you'd come to me about that. But I'm glad he did. Because do you know what I told him? You're an idiot. I told him this. You are an idiot. And I said, just think about what's going to happen. You're going to go out with this woman and your wife's going to divorce you. She's going to take the kids because she's a better parent than you. Let's be honest here. You're working and she's going to take a large chunk of your income because you've got to pay for your kids. Your kids aren't going to like you and you're not going to have the time because you're not going to be spending with them. You're not going to be able to do the sports with them that you love right now. If you do get with this other woman, I mean, she's bad news already. She's willing to date a married guy. You think that's going to turn out well? And then you're going to have another broken relationship. You're going to be on your own, eating a cup of noodles every night. Do you want to be that person? Just practically. Not even is this right or wrong. Do you want to do that practically? And thankfully, he decided not to. And he's still together with his wife. Just think of the practical consequences of your decisions in this. Don't go down that path of covenant unfaithfulness. Instead, say, I'm going to be faithful to my wife. I'm going to choose that over and over and over again. There's been some studies on, on couples and on individuals that are saying that they're unhappy in their marriage. And they found in this study that there is no evidence that unhappily people who get divorced are any happy, happier than unhappily people that stay married. If you get divorced, that doesn't mean you're going to get happier. In fact, studies have shown it won't increase your happiness. They found this, that two-thirds of unhappily married spouses who stayed married 
were happier five years later. They also found that eight out of ten individuals who stayed together when they were saying that they're unhappily married were happily married five years later. Eight out of ten. For the large majority of people, it is better to stay married, even if right now things are not going well. So if you're here today and you're like, Matt, my marriage is on the rocks, things are not good, stick with it. Stay to the path of covenant faithfulness because God can heal and bring back even the worst relationships from the edge and restore them. We make these vows for God and these witnesses. Let's stay true to the path of covenant faithfulness. That's our fourth point. And our fifth one today, our fifth one today may be the most important for someone in here today. I, I know it is. It's to find satisfaction in your spouse. Find satisfaction in your spouse. Proverbs chapter 5, beginning in verse 15, says, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. And then jumping down to verse 18, we read, May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Did you know that was in the Bible? It's a good verse. And whether you're a man reading this or a woman, it's saying the physical aspect of your marriage is important. The physical aspect is important. That intimacy is important for your marriage. You're supposed to find satisfaction in your spouse. And in case you're wondering, we're talking about sex here. You're supposed to find satisfaction in your spouse. It's talking about the physical aspects of a wife, isn't it? Physical aspects. And it's saying the wife of your youth. So this is implying that as you get older, beauty, physical beauty changes. And yet still, you are supposed to find enjoyment and satisfaction in the spouse of your youth. So if you're here and you're married, your spouse, no matter what they look like right now, is your standard for beauty. So whether your wife is thin now, thin is the standard of beauty. Whether she used to be, maybe she used to be thin, used to be thin is your standard of beauty. If your husband has hair right now, that's what you love. If he used to have hair, that's what you love. Whatever your spouse looks like right now is your standard of beauty. You shouldn't be comparing her to Julia Roberts or him to Matt Damon, and he looks good. That's not what it's about, okay? It's about my spouse, my wife, my husband, they are my standard of beauty. I will delight in them and find enjoyment and satisfaction in them no matter what they look like. Their physical aspects should be beautiful for you. What this also means is that we need more PDA. We need more public displays of affection. Unless you're not married. Okay? Then you can wait. But if you're married, studies have shown that those who engage in PDA have healthier marriages. So I want to see more people kissing in this church. Your spouses. No boyfriends and girlfriends. We better not see that. This means you need to have date nights. This means that you should kiss while not having sex. This means that you need to communicate your affection to your spouse. Tell them how much you like the way they look. William Harley in his book... Uh, if sinners say I do, something along those lines. It'll come to me in a second. He says that many men think affection is a trivial need. So men think affection is a trivial need. But it, then he says many women think sex is a trivial need. But it's the opposite. 
So if your man, your wife's most important physical need is affection. She wants to know that you love her. Say it. Show it to her by back rubs, by kissing, PDA. Wives, your husband wants sex. Let's be honest about this. And those things seem opposite, but you need both of them in a healthy marriage. So for a wife, sex comes out of a healthy relationship, whereas for a husband, it leads to one. So this is a tricky thing. that We're made different like this, but we need to realize this about our partner. So I, I, I want to give you a few hints and tips here, and I know this is awkward, but somebody's got to say it. Because a study in 2003 found that 15 to 20% of marriages are sexless. That's pretty bad. And the Bible, God thinks that sex is a good thing. You know, he created it. He could have created us like a lot of the rest of the animals with sex just for procreation, but he didn't. He didn't. He created us to enjoy and have pleasure in sex. He did that for a reason. It's very important to him. And Christians should make a big deal out of this. There was a case in Boston with the Puritans and there was a church and there was this man there that decided he didn't want to have sex with his wife for, for two years this went on so the church kicked him out they excommunicated this man for that I, I, that's a pretty good reason to excommunicate someone but, but the thing is that most people think that Christians like don't like sex no, no 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 God created sex for marriage and it's supposed to be enjoyed that's why you're supposed to enjoy and find satisfaction in your spouse so here's the tips one do it often Two, both people should initiate. Three, take time. Women want 10 to 30 minutes of foreplay. Men, are you listening? Four, make yourself look and smell desirable to the other person. Take a shower, brush your teeth. Five, sleep in the same bed. If one of you has an issue with snoring, go to the doctor and get it figured out. Go to bed together. Don't have a TV in the room. Or an iPad. Don't have kids or pets in the bedroom with you. These are the ways, if you want to have intimacy, if you want to enjoy your spouse, do these things. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. God wants you to enjoy your spouse. He wants you to enjoy this and have a good relationship, great intimacy. So let's work on this. It's important to a healthy marriage. Proverbs 6 verse 25 gives us even more instruction about this. It says, Do not lust in your heart after your neighbor's wife's beauty. Or let her captivate you with her eyes. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? So this goes beyond just, okay, I, I haven't ever cheated on my spouse physically, but it's saying the lust in your heart, the lust in your eyes. That's why Jesus said it's not just a sin to commit adultery, it's a sin to look with lust upon your neighbor's wife. Because when we look at this person, when we have this adulterous thoughts in our head, it begins to change our heart and literally change the makeup of our brain. William Struthers is a biophysicist and he studied the brain under arousal. And he's found that what's released in our brain is dopamine. And the parts of our brain that light up when studied under physical arousal like this are the same things that happen when you're on heroin. Our brains can make this powerful drug when we're physically attracted to another person. So when you think about them, when you focus on them, when you fantasize about them, you are creating your brain to be addicted to that person. That's what happens when you're looking at pornography. 
or, or, or anything that you're lusting after, if it's another person that you work with, this is what can mess up your marriage. Because your brain is getting rewired to that other person. And the good thing is that that can be healed. What, what causes those addictions can be healed. You should become, then, addicted to your spouse. I challenge you to fantasize about your spouse. Think about them. Focus on them. Send them some texts that nobody else should read. Okay? These are the things that you can do to develop this healthy intimacy so that you begin to be addicted to them. I think that's why God developed our brains that way. So we'd have this like glue tying us, uniting us with our spouse by our brain. It's this powerful chemical that's being released. We need to find our satisfaction in our spouse alone. John Piper has said, The reason there is so much misery in marriage is not that husbands and wives seek their own pleasure, but that they do not seek it in the pleasure of their spouses. We need to go after pleasure, go after satisfaction in our spouse. That's the way to create this healthy relationship. And our last proverb for today is Proverbs 12.4. In it, we read, A wife of noble character is her husband's crown. So if you're a husband in here and you have a wife, she is your crown. She is your trophy wife. If you're married and you're thinking about your husband, he is the prince you've always longed for. And you need to treat them as such. You need to tell other people about them. Don't go with your girlfriends and be like, oh, you never know. Guess what my husband did this time. Guys, don't get with with your bros and, and they're like, oh, the old ball and chain. No, she's your trophy wife. Brag about her. Tell everybody how great she is. She is your crown. She is your splendor. Researchers at the University of Buffalo studied marriages and they found that those who overinflated their partner's characteristics were more likely to stay happy in marriage. If you're bragging on your spouse, saying, look how great they are, look at what they've done, oh, they're incredible. That's what we need if we want to have healthy marriages. Take pride in your spouse. Wear them like a crown. Look what I have in my life. So our big idea today, we're going to wrap all this stuff up, and I don't think you're going to forget some of my points today. But if you do, remember this one. Remember this. Cherish your marriage. You can remember that. It's pretty simple. Cherish your marriage. Your wife is your crown. Your husband's your prince. Value them. Cherish them. Spend time working on this because if you want a good marriage, you're going to have to work on it and it's totally worth it. In our culture, marriage gets a bad rap. And in fact, I had someone told me that marriage is now out of style. Have you heard that? It's true. 70% of people, 72% of people in 1960 were married. They were couples. Now it's less than 50%. More people are cohabiting instead of getting married. And one Pew Research forum found that 40% of unmarried adults believe marriage is becoming obsolete. It's going the way of the dinosaurs. It's done. It's dead. It doesn't matter anymore. You don't need marriage. The reality is that marriage is important. It's valuable. It's special. It's sacred. And it's way better than anything else the world has as far as relationships. It's way better. Way better. You know, I got engaged to my wife when I was 21 years old. I met her in, in our last year of college at Colorado State University. And, you know, I was kind of nervous to start dating with her. I remember telling one of my buddies, because I knew that I would marry her if I started dating her. I just knew. You know, there's this thing that I, I knew. But we, got, we started dating, and a year and a month after we started dating, I, I proposed. And I, I took her up 
we drove up to Estes Park and uh, Rocky Mountain National Park and we went snowshoeing around Bear Lake and I proposed to her and we were just so excited. I was 21, I think she was 22 at the time and we were just thrilled. We were having a great time. We called our friends, called our family. We celebrated that night at, at dinner at Estes Park. We had a great time. And I remember then going a few days later back to work. I worked at a restaurant at the time as a waiter and I told my coworkers, and they're like, oh, I'm sorry. They're like, why are you doing that? Why are you wasting your life? You're so young. What a terrible decision. And this is what they said. <laughs> I don't even know what they thought. And, and yeah, I was young. And I'm not trying to say you have to get married young or, or wait. That, that's not the point. The point is our culture doesn't value marriage. And yet it is one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. I know I want to be half the man I am today without my wife. Her encouragement, her standing beside me, her always being there for me when I'm a jerk, forgiving me. My wife is incredible and I'm so happy I got marriage. I'm so glad I didn't listen to those idiots. Those naysayers. So don't listen to the people that say marriage is going out of style. It's more important now than ever before. In the Presbyterian Book of Common Prayer, it says that God established marriage for the welfare and happiness of humankind. God created marriage for us, for enjoyment, for pleasure, for happiness. Men, if you're married, you will earn more money, save more money, and to have three times the assets of your colleagues who are unmarried at the age of 50. You will have better sex and better physical health. Both men and women, the happiness boost of getting married is equivalent to a $100,000 pay raise. The health benefit of being married is as significant as quitting smoking. If you get married, you will be healthier, happier, and richer. That's just practically speaking. Think of all the other emotional and spiritual benefits you'll have as well. Marriage is a great thing, so cherish your marriage. Make it special. Work on it. It's worth it. And as we think about marriage, we should also think about what this marriage God created is supposed to point to. Because God loved us so much that He created a covenant with us. And He said, I don't care how sinful you are and how much you have wronged me or run away with someone else, gone on this path of unfaithfulness, I'm still going to send my Son to go after you. And Jesus is going to love you. He's going to die on the cross for you. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus was willing to die on the cross for us because he wanted a relationship with us. And that's what we should remember when we're now stepping into our relationships and our marriages. That no matter what my spouse does, I have this covenant. I'm committed to them just like God is committed to me. I'm going to love them even when they are not loving me. I'm going to forgive them even when they have done the most awful things to me because of Jesus Christ dying for us. Dave Harvey says that the gospel is the fountain of a thriving marriage. God loves us. The band is going to come up here now and they're going to lead us in this last song, Your Love Never Fails. And I think this was a great choice, Bobby. Because God's love for us never fails. He goes after us. He cares about us and says, I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you've made a lot of mistakes in your marriage or in your dating. I don't care anything that you've done. I have forgiveness and love for you. It never fails. So our marriage in the same way should never fail with our love. So what I want to do is have all the married couples stand up. If, if you're with your spouse, I want you to stand up and grab a hand with them. And 
Maybe some of you or your spouse isn't here. You can stand up too. But especially if you're married, I want you to stand up and grab a hold of the hand of your spouse. Um, And if you're sitting down, this is a chance for us to pray for these couples because they need our prayers. Those of you who are single saying, glad I don't have that right now on my plate. That's okay. Let's pray for these couples right now. And I'll say a prayer for everybody. Um, Lord God, we pray for these couples especially today that you would um, grow their affection for each other. If there's a marriage here that's on the rocks, that you bring them back to each other. Draw them to, to the, each other. Lord, I pray that your love for them would be full in their relationship. That their love for each other would be like your love for us. That they would be able to forgive each other. Move past things in the past. Change their communication from negative to positive. Give them more intimacy in their relationship. Lord, I pray that these marriages in our church would thrive. That they would be powerful and beautiful things that would be glued together, stronger than all the tests of our culture, of our times, of the wayward paths that we sometimes go down. Lord, I pray that these marriages would thrive and be built up. And for all of us today, for those thinking about marriage, or thinking about getting remarried, would you just set them up for that to succeed? And Lord, for all of us who have made mistakes in the past that we've sinned we've said the wrong thing done the wrong thing gone down the wrong path God would you forgive us because you have great love for us draw us to yourself right now with this final song in Jesus name Amen